This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. This is episode number 217, and joining me on this episode is Kelsey McNair, founder and head brewer from North Park Beer Co. in uh, San Diego, California. Welcome to the podcast, Kelsey. Thanks, Jamie. It's great to be here. We we had a, a late-night conversation at CBC sitting on some couches at, uh, at Death & Company uh, over some cocktails. Indeed. And then, the next, and then the next day, we were sitting next to each other uh, watching the... Yeah, the the GABF awards ceremony, in which you then won a silver medal in the hazy IPA category and a bronze medal in the American I- Imperial IPA category, a crazy feat to come away with two IPA medals in different such different categories of IPA in one year. It was pretty remarkable. Can't wait to talk to you about how you pulled off that kind of dark magic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still in disbelief about it. I uh, uh, well, I'm not in disbelief. I've I've tasted your beers, uh, beers like Infinite Content. Uh, in the past, scored a 96 with our blind judges here at Craft Beer and Brewing. Um, you know, your barrel aged beers have done well with our our blind panel as well. Can't wait to delve into subjects that, that range from hoppy beer even to barrel aging. Before we do that, for nearly 30 years, GD Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on. GD stands above the rest as the only chiller manufacturer that engineers your glycol piping for free. GD stands alone as the only chiller manufacturer with an in house team of installers and engineers with 30 years of real world field labor experience in breweries, wineries, and distilleries. Contact the total glycol system design experts today at gdchillers.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by our friends at BSG. We all know the best brewing results come from the best ingredients. BSG offers the largest variety of quality ingredients to create outstanding beers. BSG brings the best quality malt, hops, and additives from around the world to your brew house. Their knowledgeable and dedicated staff comes from the brewing industry and can assist you in product consultation for your recipe formulation. Contact your dedicated sales or customer support rep or become a customer at bsgcraft.com slash be a customer. Um, we are getting to the end of this year of the podcast. Want to appreciate or send our appreciation and thoughts out to everyone who has helped us along this way, all the brewers that have appeared on it, and of course, all of our sponsors that have made it possible for us to bring you this. 2022 is looking great. We've got a, an amazing schedule lined up so far. We're going to Europe for the podcast, and most of our sponsors are coming on back. In 2022, we've got GD Old Orchard, BSG Pro Brew, SS Brew Tech, and a whole bunch more that are have come in again and uh, are supporting our bringing you these great brewing conversations. And so we want to express our appreciation to them. Kelsey, talk to me about your background in brewing. How did you get to a point now with North Park beer? Then, you know, you were, you, you started out as a home brewer. I've, I've read the PR stuff on all the stone collabs that they did years and years ago. Um, as you made a name for yourself on that homebrew world, you went pro and here we are, but, uh, but fill in all the gaps for me. Talk to me about how you made that kind of jump, where you got into beer, how you started brewing, how you caught the bug 
and then how you decided to make a career out of it. All right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, even back in like, uh, you know, the, the end of high school, uh, you know, when, when all of the, the friends were drinking swill, you know, thanks to somebody with a fake ID, uh, I always wanted beer that had a little more flavor to it, you know, and I, I'm not talking anything crazy, but I'd always say, Oh, you know, get me something different. You know, I, I don't want the natty light. Uh, I don't want the ice house, you know, go, go ahead and grab me something a little, little different. And, uh, you know, at some point, uh, you know, as I got a little older, uh, you know, I turned on to like Guinness and Newcastle and I was like, Oh, these beers have some flavor. It's actually, you know, pretty, pretty good for for what it was at the time i was living in uh, tampa florida um and moved out to san diego uh when i turned uh well i was 20 years old at that point uh when i turned 21 uh living are you, in are san you from florida no um i was actually born just outside of buffalo new york uh okay. my dad was a high profile demolition contractor moved around a little bit through through my youth was in Houston for a, a stretch and then uh, um, Tampa before I moved, you know, and landed in San Diego where I've been ever since. Um, but yeah, I turned 21 in San Diego and, uh, you know, grocery shopping and deciding what, what to pick off the beer aisle. Um, you know, I knew I liked Guinness. Uh, and so I saw Old Rasputin Imperial Stout and I was like, ooh, what's this? And then I saw the ABV on it and I was like, oh, wow, okay. And I, you know, I uh, brought that home, cracked it open, and I was totally blown away. Um, couldn't believe how much flavor was in that beer. And then uh, the next time I went back to the store, uh, Stone Arrogant Bastard is sitting there on the shelf mocking me. I pick it up and I read the label and I'm like, okay, this is some ridiculous stuff right here. So I went ahead and bought it and I took it home. And I, again, kind of blown away by the flavor of, of that, um, you know, hadn't really had anything with that kind of bitterness at that point. Um, you know, obviously had a Sierra Nevada somewhere across my path. And the next thing I know, I'm like, okay, I got to find the beer store that has, you know, all the stuff. I go to BevMo and fill up the shopping cart and I'm just trying all the styles I can. Um, you know, I, I, uh, start dating the woman who is uh, now my wife. Um, and, uh, I love to cook, had no culinary ambitions. Um, and, uh, it was, uh, Christmas 2003 that, um, her office mate had, uh, had bought for her husband, uh, a Mr. Beer kit, um, that she saw. And at some point I casually dropped like, oh yeah, I might like to try homebrewing someday. So, um, I, I also got a Mr. Beer kit uh, that year for Christmas, which, uh, you know, not I don't know a whole lot of brewers that, that are doing what I'm doing now that started on that. Uh, but I, I talked to a lot and many, many have. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I ran through the motions on that thing once and I, it was more about just like the allure of crafting the beverage and watching the fermentation and, and seeing a result that was you know, actually so shockingly palatable. Um, obviously not fantastic beer by any stretch, but I was amazed that I made something that I could, I could actually consume. And it was even like that first time through it where I was just like, man, like I'm doing the wrong thing. At the time I was a video game artist, uh, which is, was a lot of fun, great career. But I also said, you know, oh man, like this connects so many dots for me. Like it's creativity. It's, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's the, that culinary itch that I have that, you know, and, uh, you know, so I, I ran on this little Mr. Beer kit and 
brewed a bunch of extract beer for a year and my friends were all stoked and I was not, I was like, oh, these beers are all pretty much crap. And I, you know, I hadn't done my homework. And so I just, I said, you know what, I'm going to take a whole year off and I'm just going to, you know, digest as much information as I can. Um, the brewing network had just, you know, hit, hit the scene. Um, you know, Jamil Zanishev was sharing all of his uh, wisdom. I learned that there was a great homebrewing community in San Diego uh, with one of the most successful homebrew clubs in, you know, in the world, Quaff. Uh, and its membership is just amazing. Like so many good people in that club that I've, you know, made great relationships and, you know, uh, have continued to uh, connect with after all these years. Um, you know, I just started absorbing and going to breweries and asking questions and, and uh, you know, just trying to put things together. Uh, a friend of, of mine who I met through his blog, uh, he's no longer a home brewer. His name's Johnny Lieberman. He's actually uh, uh, like a senior editor at Motor Trend. Um, so he spends his time driving fancy cars these days. Uh, he had a blog that he was doing all kinds of ridiculous beers. Um, and he did like a, you know, kind of a here's all my equipment and here's how I built it. So uh, that was my next step was to graduate up, go all grain, have all the temperature control, do all the steps and procedures that commercial breweries were doing. And so, you know, I applied all of that information, built this system. Uh, my first beer after my hi hiatus, I entered it in the national homebrew competition. And in the first round, it pulled me a bronze medal. It was a Imperial IPA. And so that was very gratifying, you know, after all this time um, that my newfound knowledge, I could apply it and see some results. And that bug really sunk in. Like the second I pulled that first medal, I just was so hungry to, to keep, you know, improving my beer. I wanted the unbiased feedback, but I also was chasing, you know, the hardware just as much. Um, so... Uh, I kept that up. Um, 2010 was really the pivotal year for me. Stone had their uh, AHA rally that they have uh, have had pretty much every year. Um, and, uh, you know, low number of entries, but most of the entries in these contests were, you know, Imperial Stouts, big adjunct beers, crazy stuff. You know, what's going to really get, you know, Greg Cook, you know, excited to, to market this homebrewer's recipe. And here I come in and enter a 4.2% uh, session IPA, which wasn't even really a style at the time commercially. Um, there were only a couple on the market. Locally, there was even Keel from Ballast Point. Um, but I was like, you know, as a beer drinker, my affinity for hops, loving IPAs, um, I really was excited about that. Like, oh, this is the IPA I can drink five of, you know, okay, this sounds cool. Like, and I put it into that contest, you know, with, with minimal expectations and they, they picked it, you know, that was the winning beer for them. And I was just, you know, on cloud nine to, uh, as the award to get to scale my beer up and have it distributed at the time into 23 states, uh, which was met with a, pretty incredible response. I mean, I'm reading all the rate beer reviews and beer advocate. And at, at the time it was just, you know, it, it was huge. Um, same year, uh, I'm entering the national homebrew competition and hop foo, which, uh, was a recipe that I started tinkering with in 2006. 
uh, wins me a gold medal uh, on the national level, which um, that was equally as massive as, as winning Stones contest. And it was kind of at that moment that I said, you know what, my IPAs evidently stand on a, a pretty big stage. So right, I right. need to figure out how to turn this into my life and not just my hobby. Um, and that's kind of where the whole idea of North Park Beer Company uh, came to life. So you, you come up with this idea of going pro, but then there's a big gap, you know, and especially, you know, in 2010, 2011, I mean, that's still the front end of the kind of explosion that we saw in craft breweries in the 20 teens, um, getting a brewery up and running, especially in a market like San Diego, you know, not the easiest thing to do. No, definitely not. And for me, you know, it was a challenge because I had this great career um, in video games uh, and it was very stable and I had great income. Um, and, uh, you know, I was, uh, I was reluctant to step into brewing, you know, and I know a lot of people are like, oh, I bootstrapped it and I did, you know, I, I fought tooth and nail to get up from the ground and I gave up you know, everything. And I just said, you know what, I want to, like, I could dive into this head first, but I'm not a businessman. Um, I'm, you know, I, I work a career and I'm uh, a, a semi-accomplished home brewer at this point, and I need more time. Um, and I, I know that everybody says, you know, oh, take the amount of capital you think you, you'll need and double it, you know, I, I think really triple it. But, uh, I wanted to take, I wanted to take the time to do it right, find the right location, um, make sure it was exactly where I wanted it to be. Um, and my whole road was just catch 22s, you know, it was, or it was, uh, you know, oh, uh, I'm talking with a prospective landlord. Um, uh, you know, I want to open a brewery. Okay, great. Well, where's your capital? Um, still working on that. Um, okay. And then I go fish for investors and they're like, well, you've got a plan that's very location centric. Where's, where's the space? And I just kind of kept, uh, running into this issue where I, I, you know, it was a catch 23 where I could not, uh, could not like make things line up. Eventually, you know, I keep winning awards and I keep pushing that boulder up the hill and eventually, you know, it gets to the top and it starts to roll. And then, you know, it just, it all came together. But uh, it was it was rough. I mean, I would have loved to have seen this brewery open in, you know, 2012, 2013. Um, and, it, you know, we didn't get open until June of 2016. And tons of breweries had opened in the meantime. So um, some of it was patience. Some of it was just, you know, uh, difficulties for sure. It is a beautiful brewery space and a, a, a fantastic location. And it does seem like all of that came together for you. Um, you know, in full disclosure, we did actually have a brewery accelerator event there when we were in San Diego a few years ago. Um, so we have been there, seen there, been, I've actually been there a few times. I haven't actually never connected with you while we were there, which is strange, but, uh, uh, <laughs> well, that was, I, I think that at that point in my, you and know, this was still early days for you all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, after getting open, uh, I, for six months, I had no, I had, didn't hire a brewer. I had no assistant brewer. Uh, I had no salesperson. And so, you know, I'm doing all of the beer production, all the cellaring. And if 
stuff needs to get delivered, uh, I'm either leaning on my then taproom manager uh, or, you know, delivering it myself. And, you know, to say I wasn't putting in 100 hours a week, you know, that that would be a lie. I absolutely was living in this space. Um, and I do remember, you know, when you guys came in for that uh, that event, and I knew it was going on, but man, I have yeah, absolutely yeah. no bandwidth. For sure. For sure. Well, your wife is a saint. <laughs> she is. She's amazing. <laughs> um, let's talk about the beer itself. You mentioned hot foo. I was just talking to Joe Stang, our managing editor, before we started up here. And he was mentioning that he met up with uh, Beth Demon and her husband when they were out in San Diego and drank hot foo in your tap room. Um, I love that this, you know, this beer has just you know been this kind of through line from your home brewing into your your professional career before we talk about uh, how you brew those beers the most common complaint about hard seltzers they need more flavor extract alone is a weak flavoring agent and can leave a chemical aftertaste but there's a better way the craft concentrate blends from old orchard are packed with real fruit first no added sugars and just enough natural flavor breweries are turning to old orchard concentrates for seltzer with more body color and aroma Turn seltzer skeptics into supporters with seltzer that drinks like a beer. Get started at www.oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, still emptying those overflowing waste bins of crushed low fills or undercarbonated cans every canning day. It's time to fill like a pro. Pro fill can fillers from ProBrew use rotary true counterpressure gravity filling and seaming technology to run at speeds of 100 to 300 cans per minute with minimal do pickup stop wasting perfectly good beer email probrew at contact at probrew.com today so kelsey clearly you've won a whole mess of awards on the homebrew scale you've you won programs you've brewed with stone you've got all this stuff going on you you open up your own you know, commercial brewery, but now, and now you're playing with the big boys and you're competing against some of those folks that you've been, you know, brewing in a, a, you know, very friendly way with before. And I shouldn't say that because all of this world of craft beer is both competitive and cooperative. Uh, You know, the, the key feature of craft beer is helping everyone get better at doing this so that the entire world of craft beer is more compelling for consumers. But nonetheless, in the San Diego market, being an IPA hoppy beer brewer and going commercial means there's an immense expectations on you. And if you're going to make any kind of mark whatsoever, you don't just have to be damn good. I mean, you really have to be next level. Talk to me about how you then took those recipes that you had been honing and were familiar with figured out how to brew them at a commercial scale and then set about trying to turn those into things that were going to be game changers for consumers and create a name for you on that kind of commercial world. I mean, the expectation had to be huge and the opportunity to fail was pretty big there. Yeah, for sure. Um, I definitely resonate with the opportunity to fail um you know right out of the gate uh i i felt like i had done my homework i talked to you know a lot of other uh brewers who had scaled up and i felt like i really understood the mechanics of okay i can take this 10 barrel batch and i can turn it into 15 barrels and it's going to work 
Well, I'd say the first several turns on our system, you know, everything was uh, crushingly bitter and, uh, you know, didn't expect it. Just the uh, the hop utilization rate uh, when you go up to a, and we're on a direct fired system. So that, sure, that uh, sure. hop utilization is going to be pretty gnarly. So, you know, getting some things as far as the balance dialed in, I'd say was, you know, that was pretty quick. You know, I'd say within six months we were making beers that were, you know, they were solid. They were good. Um but I'd, I'd say that in the overall mix of like beers in San Diego, I don't know that we were necessarily wowing anybody uh, at that point. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, as a, as a brewer, you know, uh, I consider myself to be, you know, pretty meticulous and very detail oriented. Um, but when you are the proprietor, and you're the head brewer and you've always kind of shorted yourself on help uh in the brew house um there's only you know it's not that one thing suffers it's that it all suffers a little bit because you're spreading yourself too thin and that i don't feel like we really hit our stride until i realized that it was far more valuable to our beer especially um if i take a step back and manage that process more than, you know, have my hands in it. Um, and so, you know, um, we had some successes along the way, you know, 2017 was really cool for me because, you know, we, uh, we pulled a, a bronze medal for our Bohemian Pilt, um, which I thought was amazing accomplishment because obviously beers like that are very challenging to make. Uh, and then let alone, you know, impress judges to the point where they're going to put some hardware on it. Um, and it's a style that I really like to make. Um, but coming back to, you know, IPAs, I feel like we didn't really, uh, hit our stride until, boy, I mean, really, I mean, our beers, again, I I felt I was proud of what we were doing, but I wasn't, I wasn't feeling like our beers are really um, impressing people the way that I want them to, you know? Um, And it was kind of the, I don't know, there's, there's one competition in particular and and I, I don't mean to overvalue competition. It's not everything, but um, the one competition that I think is a really big one in California is the LA IPA fest. Um, And, I participated in that a couple of years uh, before we ultimately won it in 2020 um, with a beer called Sort of Mostly Dead. And that particular event is there's, you know, uh, something like 50 or so entries. Um, All the judges are brewers from California. And, you know, it's all the best brewers. It's, you know, it's like all the best IPA brewers and it's a West coast competition, you know, it's, it's, it's not haze. Um, and it's, you know, you've got, uh, you know, Tim from cellar maker and Evan price and Bob Coons and Jeff Bagby and Julian Trego and Peter Hoey and Matt Brindleton. And, you know, from time to time, the, the, the cast of judges changes every year a little bit, but it's like, there's a lot of usual suspects in there. All uh, of those hacks. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> You, you don't get a score sheet. You don't get feedback from this yeah, event. Yeah. And so, so you only, you only get the results and, uh, you know, but the, the, the real learned thing about that event is you can, you know, if you attend it, you can taste all these beers against your own and kind of see, and then you see which one wins and you understand why it wins. Not just because, yeah, it's a fucking amazing beer. It's, it's also because, uh, you know, it, 
you know, when you compare it to yours, you're not doing it right. Um, when we won it, um, that was applying like two years of, of stuff that I had just amalgamated, um, you know, as far as sort of new school IPA techniques. You know, a lot of the things I was doing with Hopfu in particular uh, were a bit um, antiquated, very BJCP style guidelines. BJCP is not constantly updated to reflect current, you know, uh, market conditions, so to speak. Um, and so it was kind of relearning how to make IPA all over again. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I feel like the pandemic set in, uh, we turned our tasting room off because we had to. And then it was like, all I have to do right now is focus on making really good beer, putting it in the package and getting it into as many hands as possible. And I think our beers just improved like exponentially. Um, and, and it's kind of weird. It's like, nobody wants to look back on the time of the pandemic and, and say that there's a silver lining or anything good about it. Cause it's, horrible yeah. um you know about nothing worse has ever happened in my lifetime um you know and at the same time i was just able to really hone in on on what brewing is at its core and not have to worry about anything else in my business and uh it made just such a huge difference um and you know, did a lot of networking, you know, there, we couldn't get together and collab with, with friends, but, you know, we talked to friends and find out more about, you know, new stuff they're trying and, and things that we're trying, um, you know, with different hop products and different hopping rates and hopping methods and, you know, different, uh, you know, recirculating hops in a tank versus, you know, rousing or, or not, not anything at all. And how do you do it? And how do I do it? And um, just kind of like, improved everything as much as we could it is you know and again you know this is not to take anything away from the death and significant toll that COVID has had on the world as a whole but there are those small positives that we can take away from this I think that when we look back at this 10 years from now especially in the brewing world there's just some of those there have been critical moves that have happened over the last two years because of this. The explosion in lager brewing, I think you can directly trace to breweries having more time in tanks for beers and more time to try beers that didn't have to be immediate commercial successes or fill tap lines. Um, you know, and certainly then be having a little more time and space to not just focus on putting out the next fire, but instead to, I mean, there were still plenty of fires to put out. But thanks to, you know, uh, some of – anyway, there, there's a whole – it's going to be interesting to look back at this. I think we're still too close to it to, to fully, you know, understand all of the, the implications of it. But, but that's actually pretty wild. Talk to me about some of those ways from that 2019-2020, uh, you know, kind of era where you fixed well, – I shouldn't say fixed because they weren't broken, but modernized your IPAs kind of brought them into this current context. Talk to me about some of those key moves that you focused on and trying to make sure that your West Coast IPAs in particular were addressing the current context of West Coast IPA. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of it was application of hops, uh, thinking more about, you know, our grain bill, um, 
it's it's funny like back in my hunger okay, days those are I super also, super broad ways to just say that let's talk yeah, about yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll delve into it okay. but like back in my homebrew days i always had these recipes that i never made that were like like all pilsner malt you know um kind of malt get out of the way and put the hops on top and i didn't make a lot of those beers back then because they wouldn't have really worked in a bjcp context context like they wouldn't win me any awards um and your access they, to your access to quality of ingredients as a home brewer is a little different than your access to ingredient quality as a pro brewer. Definitely. Um, but it, it's funny because I had some of these ideas like back then, but I never really did anything with them. And then as I kind of start delving into the modernization of IPA, it's like, you know, seeing what guys like um, Bob and Evan are doing with their IPAs, it's like, you know, it's all Pilsner malt based. And I'm like, okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it goes back to some sensibilities that I had that maybe if we can just get that malt out of there, that platform for hops can just be, you know, that much more impressive. Um, and then, you know, the old school approach of, okay, we've got, you know, a first word edition and a 60 minute edition and probably a 30 minute edition and 15 and, a, you know, flame out, um, you know, all that stuff. Um, my approach lately has been like, let's not cook the hop so much. Um, and some of that comes from, you know, our honing in on trying to make better hazy IPAs. So, uh, you know, we're very, wait, gen- wait, wait, wait. Now you're saying that your brewing hazy IPAs has improved your West coast IPAs. I 100% would say that. Um, yeah, no, I mean, like, like the notion of doing, you know, low temperature hop stand in the kettle, um, you know, some of our West Coast IPAs uh, might get like a very gentle first wort or a 60 minute edition, but then we may not add any more hops until we're at like 170 degrees. Um, and those beers, you know, are incredibly popular. Um, they still have enough bitterness from that very early hop edition, but we're getting, you know, so much more, you know, just fruit forward notes and, um, you know, we're not getting these really kind of deep, uh, I guess, infused flavors that you get from boiling the hops. And then our, it's really been like all those mid additions, let's pull those out and throw them into the fermenter, you know, and we've cranked our West Coast dry hop rates, you know, into the, we're north of four, you know, on a lot of them. Wow. Um, and some of, you know, pretty much every single IPA for us, whether it says it on the label or not, is, is double dry hopped. Um, and, you know, uh, like the Imperial IPA uh, that we meddled with at GABF this year, um, Army of the Kind of Deadish, uh, which is the imperialized version of our sort of mostly dead. Um, yeah, I mean, that beer's, you know, north of five pounds per barrel in the dry hop. Um, and, you know, two-stage dry hop. Um, we do spin the tank uh, a couple days after the second dry hop, so we're really resuspending hops in a major way. Um, and how long for each of those uh, those dry hop regimens? Um, I, mean, so, I love that you describe it as two-stage because I was going to ask you that one. Yeah, well, how you define double dry hopped? Right. Um, I mean, double dry hop for me isn't always two x, but it does mean that we're splitting up. Um, but some would say, you know, okay, well, a standard West Coast IPA dry hops probably in the, you know, two and a half to three pounds per barrel, I think by most standards. So we, you know, when we're in north of four, I mean, I think it's pretty easy to say that is pretty close to double the amount. 
Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll do usually do a gentle hop addition when we're uh, close to terminal gravity, like one degree Play-Doh away. Uh, and a lot of times that'll be like cryo-ops. Um, and then we'll do our... Why, why, why cryo-ops? Um, just looking, you know, there's a lot less vegetal matter in there um, and trying to not uh, oversaturate with polyphenols. We get plenty of that when we do that uh, recirculation. So um, really just trying to keep the vegetal matter out early so that the uh, beer doesn't have extended contact time um, on all of those, uh, those vegetal components. Um, and then, so we're, we'll do that like a degree Play-Doh away from terminal gravity. Um, and then uh, a couple days later, we'll go ahead and uh, hit it with the like major amount of the dry hop, um, which could be like 80% of the dry hop at that point. Um, and then usually the next day where we'll, we'll do the recirc and then we'll crash it the following day. So it's a it's a pretty short dry hop. Usually it's uh, you know from from first dry hop to crash it's like four days. And you pump then you're not uh, you know just uh, uh, bubbling up. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, it's uh, our two most recent tanks that we bought um, that we installed over the summer. Uh, actually, because we've become so fond of this uh, recirculation method. They have an offset whirlpool arm set in the upper jacket of the tank. And so, you know, we're pulling out the bottom and, uh, you know, recirculating through that side port. And it definitely creates a whirlpool. Um, the way that our hops are settling out in those tanks, um, we could be using six plus pounds per barrel and we're getting the best yields out of those tanks versus, uh, you know, our others. So um, there's definitely something to it. Um, we're, you know, we're on track with these two tanks added to do around 2,800 barrels of finished beer. Um, you know, at our scale, we're just starting to contemplate things like getting a sea box and, and getting more dialed in with DO. We did buy a canning line, uh, you know, um, early summer, uh, that we've been using since, uh, so uh, our, our camps seem to be holding up, but as far as like testing against these recirculation practices, I'm not seeing any reason why it's problematic. Um, when I talk to other brewers about it who are apprehensive about it, they always tell me that, oh, I tried that and my DO, DOs shot up. Well, I, I'm, I'm not sure because I don't have that data, but at the same time, my beer seems to hold up very well once we package it not really having those issues that, you know, would lead me to believe we're getting a bunch of, of O2. So. So you have some decent pumps and some decent seals and uh, however that is working for you, it, uh, it seems to be working. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we're using our CIP pump. Um, we throw a pressure gauge on it periodically to make that, make sure that the seals are actually holding um, and yeah, everything works pretty well. Cool. Cool. Well, let's, I want to talk about, uh, hops and, and, you know, specific varieties and, uh, you know, and how you kind of go about creating that, uh, building that blend before we do that. This episode is brought to you by mountain rose herbs, purveyors of the highest quality, organic herbs, spices, and teas, whether you want to add depth to your next golden triple with classic notes of cinnamon, pepper, and clove, or artfully layer exotic zesty grains of paradise into a perfect ale. 
Adding botanicals to your brewing is an easy way to customize a delicious flavor profile. Mountain Rose Herbs has been providing organic herbs and spices to chefs, herbalists, and dedicated brewers for more than three decades. Learn more at mountainroseherbs.com and get 10% off any and all orders with the code craftbeer10. Also, as a brewery owner, you know how important it is to keep your machines running so you don't have to deal with the hassle caused by contamination, recalls, and downtime. Clarion makes food-grade lubricants to protect your equipment from the wear and tear that results in breakdowns that cut into your bottom line. Clarion gives you peace of mind so you can focus on what you do best, pouring out great-tasting beverages. Learn more at www.clarionlubricants.com. So we've talked about some of the technical approaches to dry hopping and some of the the ways that you've pushed everything later into whirlpool temperatures and whatnot. But but I'm curious about thinking about hops themselves. You know, certainly over the last five years, last 10 years, last 15 years, remarkable changes have happened in the entire world of hops in terms of varieties, in terms of the way the hops are processed. And you've had a, a front row seat on, on watching that. Now in the professional world over the last six years, you've got to you know even see change within that time period. Um, talk to me, especially, you know, and let's keep it in the West Coast vein now, as you think about West Coast IPA, how some of the hops idea blends and means of using different types of hops from cryo to whole leaf to pellet to T45 or T90 or, or whatnot has started to shift and where you are now seeing yourself going with those. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because a lot of the alternative, you know, versions of hops that we can get now, cryo, Lupo Max, uh, incognito spectrum, um, salvo. You know, yeah. I mean, all it, of the, there's all, all the products, right? All that stuff for me, anytime I see that, I'm like, that means I get to use more hops, you know? <laughs> it, and, and it's funny because a lot of these products are designed from the perspective of, Oh, we're trying to give you as a brewer more yield efficiency. And I'm like, no, that just means I get to pile on more. Um, you know, I can and, crank up the flavor without getting the negative side effects of that. Sure. Yeah. Um, and we've embraced like all that stuff. Um, we do use a lot of cryo. We, uh, if, if the hop's not available in cryo, but we can get it in Lupo Max, you know, we'll give that a try. Um, we've really embraced uh, incognito in a different way. You know, it's, it was designed as a hot side product. We actually dry hop with it a lot. What? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's been kind of in my back pocket for a while, but um, I, I don't know. It's how do you dry hop with incognito or, or f like a flowable hops product like that? Um, you load it into the fermenter before you knock out. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, and I mean, you know, j just thinking about it in terms of temperature, because, you know, it doesn't generally need heat in order to, you know, be absorbed to right. flow so, through and be absorbed in a liquid. So you knock out a barrel hot. Okay. And then you turn on the heat X. <laughs> so you, so yeah. let, let, let me get this straight you're knocking out hot into a fermenter that has this in it and then pulling it back out of there through a heat x to get it back down to the right temperature no um no you're you're knocking out a barrel hot and then you turn on the heat x and it'll bring the tank temp down you know as you're knocking out oh, okay that first little 
bit needs to get mixed up. Oh, okay. Okay. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we tinkered around with, with all kinds of stuff along those lines. Um, and, uh, so why, you know, what's the difference in dry hopping with a product like incognito, you know, from a sensory perspective for you? Um, really for me, when we, so, uh, Sidestep, this whole idea kind of sprouted from a first collaboration we did with Scott Wood from Courtyard Brewing. Uh, Courtyard's a little brewery down in um, New Orleans, and Scott used to uh, live out in San Diego before he moved there and opened his brewery. Um, He was pushing into our collab to use varietal-specific CO2 um, extract products uh, in the kettle. Um, during the whirlpool specifically. And we did get character from that that I hadn't experienced before and I liked it. But I was like, when I would, when we would go and rinse out the kettle at the end of the process, I'd be like, well, nothing, none of like too much of this is still sitting here in the kettle. And I like kept tinkering with devices to try and bring it further and further downstream. And it wasn't, and so, I mean, like we would load it into a hot back and run through the kettle and push it through the heat exchanger and, uh, you know, try and get it into the, the kettle, I mean, into the fermenter. And, uh, you know, we would find that when we'd run the CIP, because it hit the heat X, got cold, it just resolidified. And then, um, you know, our CIP liquid would turn green and it's like, well, we didn't get that where it needed to go. And so it was just kind of like a pragmatic uh, uh, final approach to just load it into the fermenter um, and knock out a barrel hot. And that idea actually was when we brewed a collab with, uh, with uh, Tim and Connor from Cellar Maker. Um, Tim was like, why don't we just throw it in the tank? And it was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I see what you're saying. When you say knock out a barrel hot, you mean the first barrel is going in hot and then, then yeah. you're you're then activating you, the heat X right, to then yep. bring the temperature down on the rest of everything that's going through there. Yep. That's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. It's that's so smart. Um, and the flavor that you um, get, like when you start tasting, you know, your samples uh, a few days in um, it's, it's like it's already been dry hopped and, and it doesn't come with all the baggage that you get when you've dumped a bunch of T90 in it knock out or, or uh, you know, into your fermenter, like knocking out onto hot pellets. Um, it's, it's a much cleaner, like it still has a very intense, like resinous burn to it. But by the time you get to the end of the fermentation cycle and you're crashed out and ready to package, all of that's kind of faded. Um, but uh, yeah, it's been- it's And you been get a- to enjoy all of that biotransformation that occurs in the process too, right? For sure. Um, and, and that's definitely, you know, something that works obviously well in, in hazy IPA. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was something that, you know, took some, some, some other people's ideas and just tried to figure out how we could make it into something that, um, yielded really cool results. Um, so that was a, that was a fun one. Um, and I mean, like, uh, art is hard, you know, and, and you wanted to stay West coast, but, but I'll just say like for, for that beer, that's actually the first top edition. Um, and so and art is hard is that the hazy IPA that you want a silver medal for at GBF just correct. so that every, everyone's following along. Okay. On this one. Yeah. Yeah. 
So the, and yeah, that so, that's the first top edition for that. Right. So there's there's actually nothing happening in the kettle for that beer. Oh really? N- yeah. No, none, not even in the whirlpool. No hops until you knock out hot into the fermenter with some incognito. Right. Kelsey, you're crazy, but I love it. But I love it. I love it. <laughs> Let's talk about specific hops. Obviously, you know, the the you know, we think of them and have used this metaphor, you know, quite a bit that, you know, hops are like paint pigments, you you know, and what you get to choose from is different now than it used to be. And even the quality of those is, is different now than it used to be. Um, when it comes to, to some of these things, where do you find yourself, you know, and even especially, I mean, there's expectations both in hazy IPA in terms of tropical citrus, et cetera, flavors. There's, there's expectations in West coast IPA in terms of dankness and bitterness, as well as that fruitiness. Um, where do you find yourself generally playing in that hop blend realm in terms of varieties? Um, for me, it's, you know, I, I try and take the approach of, okay, are we looking, are we starting at counterpoint or are we just trying to find some things that are complementary? And I always find that both of those things work. Um, but sometimes it's like, okay, so I've got, you know, this hop might bring sweet fruit. Um, so I definitely want some, something with an edge to, you know, some bite to it that's going to, um, you know, contrast to that. So that we've got more complexity that was like going back to hop foo that beer and its selection of hops was always built around um trying to create a very complex hop flavor profile that when you would read the style guideline for which it would be judged against it would have you know in that description a lot of different flavors that could be included my goal was to try and touch on all of those so that, you know, the judge who's writing down those notes says, oh, there is citrus, there is pine, there, you know, there are all of these different elements and, and the beer is really well balanced um, and, and matches up with, you know, all of the style, not just a piece of it. And I kind of go into a lot of my, you know, hop, uh, when I'm putting together um, hops with that kind of approach, I always like there to be dimension, you know, it's, it's like, if uh you know if if it's just peach rings like somebody might really like that you know like but i would i would want to offset that with a few other flavors so that we get that bowl of fruit instead of just that one thing um so i mean yeah it's 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 really just about kind of building a layer of flavors still even though you think about this kind of balance i know that there's some go-tos that you have to love that oh. you just have to love what they, uh, what they feed into, into those beers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, let's I mean, talk about it, both a West coast and then a, a hazy kind of realm. Okay. What some of those, like those core favorites that start to define your approach to IPA become. Um, well, I mean, for me, like, uh, historically was, uh, like Simcoe, Amarillo, and Columbus was like kind of my trio that hop foo was kind of built on. And then when Citra, you know, hit the scene, I fell in love with Citra and Citra is like one of those that I can put it in West coast. I can put it in a hazy and it's, it's, it's just always a really good base point. Um, Mosaic, you know, is another one for West coast that I absolutely adore. I think it works well in, in hazy IPA too, but I just like that deep, like blueberry, you know, just really 
uh, nice resinous, you know, component to it. Um, and I love the way that a hop-like mosaic uh, plays so well with like the passion fruit and, and cannabis notes of strata, um, you know, and you get the tropical fruit notes from Simcoe. Uh, you know, and that, that citrusy bite, you know, uh, from the, from, from Citra, like those, those four hops, that's like the, you know, the West Coast Quartet. Um, <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, I, and, you know, you can use a couple of them, you can use all of them, you know, uh, and then, you know, old school stuff, like you can throw in the mix some Chinook, you know, you get that really big pineapple-y, you know, resiny bite, um, you know, uh, Centennial is always, you know, a favorite. Um, I've been really nerding out on the survivables data that's been coming sure, out sure. from, uh, you know, and kind of seeing, like, going back and reapplying things like, oh, try that on the hot side and just leave it out of the dry hop and then, you know, load up these guys in the dry hop and, and uh some of that experimentation has been, you know, pretty fruitful as far as the results go. So it's, it's kind of cool. Pun, to, pun intended. Yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, specifically, uh, obvi- obvi- that's, that's changed the way that you're using certain hops and pushing some onto the hot side and some only onto the cold side now. Yeah. But I mean, like I was saying earlier, I'm more and more getting away from using hops that were boiling. Like a lot of hops yeah, are going yeah. in at a, a colder, steep temperature when they do go in hot. Um, and I think a lot of that is just really honing in on our own house flavor. That's one thing that, that I like. And especially in a city like San Diego, where we want to stand out, you know, and be a little bit different than everybody else. Um, we have to have beers that taste like ours. Um, and, uh, I feel like we're really coming into that. And you think that it's this pushing towards cooler temperatures that is really helping make that happen for you? I think that's part of it. I, you know, and I think that, you know, it's just some of our techniques and, you know, we're, we're not a big distributing brewery. So we, you know, like a home brewer has the luxury of kind of, you know, overspending, so to speak on processes. Uh, we, we, you know, kind of do the same. So, you know, we push a lot more hops because we're not, we're not having to take such a big margin hit. And, you know, that's part of our business model is to set the quality as something that's core to what we do and, you know, experiment, try new things all the time. Um, and, you know, just, uh, you know, somebody wants, uh, asked me in the supply chain, they were like, um, aren't you worried about your beer not being consistent, um, batch to batch to batch? And I said, I'm only concerned about my beer being better and better and better. Like if there is a place we can take this beer to the next level, that that's what I want to do. I don't want to just say, okay, this recipe's done. Let's move on. If there's room for improvement, you know, we learn a new technique that might have an impact on every single recipe that we make. That's a hoppy beer. Um, and, and that's just how we continue to evolve. It's a, it's definitely a truism that no consumer ever complained about beer getting better. There's not a single consumer that's like, Oh, I just wish the beer was consistent. Even if it was worse, if, as long as it gets better, no one ever will complain. You're right. Yeah. And you know, um, I keep coming back to hop food. It was very important beer for us to exist on, but that beer has changed, you know, it changes all the time. And it's, it's really just about the quality. Uh, the, the hop bill has, has always had the same hops in it, but, um, they're used in different ways. 
So that's the through line through it. And, you know, because why not call it something else if it's different? Obviously, people know the brand. They have an expectation for it. They come and they want hop foo. Well, just never ha- never make too many changes at once. <laughs> you know, it's, it's always sure, kind of a sure. slow build. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about Hazy IPA because I'm absolutely fascinated, in, in particular Hazy IPA. So I'm fascinated, again, coming from San Diego, it's not a market that is necessarily – loved or embraced hazy ipa there are consumers for that in san diego for sure but then there's also a hefty brewer backlash against the idea of hazy ipa and certainly you're in a you know amongst some peers who have been a little curmudgeonly about that in some kind of ways um nonetheless you have done it you've embraced it you've found your own pathway forward to make hazy ipa that feels like a beer that North Park would make. Talk to me about how you envisioned Hazy IP in that kind of way as coming from a brewery like North Park with the expectation around hoppy beers that comes with that. Um, yeah. Uh, so I didn't embrace the style at all, you know, when it first started to trend in San Diego. And, but, I, you know, as a business person, you have to, you know, give up some things at times. And I said, okay, well, we'll okay, we'll make a hazy. Um, and our first approach was not good. I mean, it was basically just, okay, we'll, we'll add some, you know, some oats to uh, West Coast IPA grist. We'll still ferment it with uh, Chico, you know, Cal Ale. And we'll dry hop it about the same as we do anything else. And, oh, yeah, it's got a bunch of hop additions in the kettle. This was like 2017 when we did this. And that was Art is Hard, which uh, became a core beer for us not long after, because even though that version of that beer sucked um, and it was bitter and, you know, wasn't what was the expectation in the San Diego market, that beer actually worked pretty well because, it was hazy, but it was more, you know, what the beer drinkers locally were used to. You know, it still had bitterness. It was it was a bridge for them. Right. But anybody who was seeking out a hazy would try it and they'd be like, oh, this is garbage. You know, this is not what I was hoping. It's not juicy. It's not, you know, it's not creamy. It's, you know, it's missing all that, that uh, you know, um, really big tropical fruit. And, and so, you know, we just started iterating on it. And uh, that beer was kind of, you know, the name Art is Hard. Um, it's uh, There's a song by the band Cursive. Um, and the song's kind of about, like, kind of, you know, as an artist, you, you know, you, you're constantly uh, up against failure and you have to, you know, sink to swim. And uh, all these concepts about, you know, um, kind of as an artist, you're the art of acting weak and, you know, you have to, uh, to try and boost your, your sales, you have to, you know, do all these, uh, things that are maybe counter to, to your core. Um, but, uh, that was kind of the idea. Cause I knew I was getting away from, from what me as a brewer wants to make. Uh, but then ultimately, uh, as I actually tried some really great versions of the style, I said, there is a target here that is an exceptional, you know, style, uh, that really people absolutely love. And there are breweries that have made a massive, massive, you know, uh, footprint, um, 
existing solely on those styles. And there's a reason for it. It's because they, they make them extraordinarily well. And there wasn't really a lot of that happening in San Diego. There were a couple of breweries that were, were doing it well. And I said, you know what, Let, let's just figure it out. Let's dig in and start talking to the brewers that are doing this style, you know, justice and really learn what it takes to make, you know, a world-class, you know, juicy New England style hazy IPA. Um, and, you know, just kept working on that recipe. And um, it took a lot of time. The hop, similar to hop foo, like I, I picked three hops that I, I thought would work well together. That one, Citra, Motueka, and Simcoe. Um, and, uh, I really like that hop combo. I think it, it works really well in that beer. Um, but, you know, again, just kind of like pushed and pulled and put them into different slots in the, in, you know, where we would hop with them. And ultimately the fermenter was where they all belonged. So, um, yeah, just iterate. And, and that's where we got. What's the, you know, and this is a, so this is a regular IPA, not a double IPA. So it's right, right around what the seven mark. Um, what's the total hop volume look like now? Obviously, if you're using hop products or, you know, uh, cryo hops of some sort, that's going to to throw off our equivalency here. Yeah, I mean, we're we're close to five pounds per barrel on that plus, um, and that includes cryo, but wouldn't include the incognito that we're using. So, you know, there there is that. Um, uh, we recently have been sprinkling a like a very, very small uh, bitterness addition into some of our hazies, uh, especially since we can so much now. So that one, while, you know, the metal winning version did get, uh, you know, virtually nothing in the kettle, uh, our, we're now adding like 10, 10 BUs of bitterness uh, with an early hop addition. Um, we find that those beers hold on a little bit better in the can. Interesting. So that actually improves the packaging performance of them. I think so. Yeah. I find that our beers fall off and they get too soft after like, you know, four weeks, but when they've got just a little bit of extra bitterness, they kind of hold. Um, and I, I find that they're more pleasant to drink later and they don't come across as particularly overly bittered, you know, at the outset. Um, so it's not compromising early, just might be a little bit more sharp, not in a bad way. It's it's funny because uh, I was when I was out in L.A. a couple I don't know a couple months ago had a conversation with a brewer out there who was saying the same exact thing on the lager side mm. that because they were focusing on packaging lagers that amping up a little bit of bitterness in that just because it was going into that kind of can format rather than draft just just helped them hold on and maintain some structure for a little bit longer. No, it's it's interesting to see just how the pandemic and the focus refocus on packaging has impacted that element of of the brewing structure um with uh with artists hard how do you you know clearly you've been successful with it clearly judges at gabf find that it resonates what do you what do you what, what do you chalk that up to how, what do you think it is about that beer that sets it apart well it's interesting because i think the the beer judges are still grounded in American style IPA, West Coast, you know, in particular. And like, if you would sit artist hard side by side with what we make these days as like a double or triple dry hop, uh, hazy double IPA or uh, triple IPA, um, it, tasting them next to each other, 
Artist Heart definitely still has a little bit more of a West Coast slant. Um, it just comes off as drier, uh, a little bit, you know, less, you know, residual sweetness. Um, and the hop bite is, you know, kind of the, the bitterness that a West Coast IPA would typically have. Whereas, you know, these higher gravity versions are much smoother and, you know, also have uh, hop intensity that is massive from, you know, triple dry hopping. But at the same time, uh, there's just an element of thickness uh, to the to how we make these higher gravity versions that Art is Hard doesn't have. And I, I think that some of that is why it appeals to the judges, because it's, it's a little bit more familiar um, in terms of body, mouthfeel, texture. Um, and then it still has the visual appearance that's expected for the style. It still has all the aroma. Um, so I, I really think it's that. It's, it's, it's how we've, you know, put the recipe together that it, it appeals to the West Coast drinker, but it is absolutely, you know, it, it meets all the marks for a hazy. And I think, you know, obviously every competition you have to know your audience and know who the judges are. And because GABF and the World Beer Cup are judged by pro brewers, right? you know, that's, they're going to be making those kinds of selections. You know, having said that, I think what you say is also really interesting that these hazy beers don't necessarily scale in a linear fashion that, you know, there is almost this exponential jump when you get to that, you know, 8% double IPA or 10% triple hazy IPA level where, you know, it, it's not just a simple move up. I mean, it becomes the opportunities with that alcohol sweetness, you know, bitterness, et cetera, just become even bigger than they are at that, that kind of single IPA level. Oh, I, I totally agree. Um, and, you know, the added alcohol from those uh, obviously helps you, you know, pull more and more hop flavor out. You know, it's, it's, it's all soluble there. And then you're just loading on hops and hops and hops. And so it's just so saturated. Um, and, you know, while we're not light on the hops on the single, uh, it's not the same rate at all. Um, and I think that it would be cloyingly over the top if we went to the dry hopping rate that we would on those higher ABV beers in the lower ABV ver version. So, Sure, sure. Well, at the top, I mentioned that we would talk about barrel-aged beers, and we're getting on in time. I don't want to ignore that. Uh, also, because I just somehow finished solo a 500-milliliter bottle of your barrel-aged stout and feel like we need to talk about it. Um, you know, certainly. <laughs> I'm, I'm impressed, I got to say. I don't usually dome one of those myself. <laughs> I, I do not either. And, uh, you know, but uh, I opened one up to start the podcast, and then we got pushed back a little bit. And like, well, I guess I'm just going to keep drinking this. So, uh, And so I did, and here we are. And I hope that I've, I've grown even more animated as a, as a result of that. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> uh, but let's talk about barrel-aged beer because certainly amongst the world of uh, beer geekdom, you know, barrel-aged barrel beers are maybe not the biggest commercial thing that you do. Far from it. They're a, a small piece of that. But they're certainly something that doing well helps create a reputation for your brewery. Um you have gone that direction, your before dying series that you've extended in multiple ways with these barrel aged stouts uh, have made some waves and they are delicious beers. But let's talk a little bit about how you create a North Park approach to barrel aged beer. Um, 
some of that's uh, happy accidents. Uh, the first, uh, the first, there's death. no happy accidents. No. <laughs> um, the, the first death before dying beer that we did, um, was an attempt at, uh, the highest gravity stout that we had done, which, uh, by today's standards, wasn't super high. It was like yeah. 32 and a half Play-Doh, um, which seemed really high to me at the time. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this from like, you know, the old Russian Imperial stouts I would make as a home brewer. Uh, and you know, they were all pretty well attenuated and this beer just crapped out early. Um, and it was for my palate, it was super sweet and it was just over the top and, um, you know, not something that I typically would like to drink. Um, but man, was it the right base beer to put in barrels? Um, and so, you know, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to, this didn't work out. I'm going to send it down the drain. It was like, well, it's very thick. It has a lot of residual sweetness, um, you know, and, but it still has a lot of good qualities to it, but it's just so out of balance. It needs, it needs some bourbon to cut through it. And so that was the, the first version that we put in barrels. Um, and that turned into the first six releases of the death before dying series that we did, but it was a light bulb moment when we finally got to tasting those barrels once they had matured. And it was like, Oh wow. Like this is exceptional. Um, and you know, at that point I hadn't really done collabs with, you know, other brewers who were making, uh, you know, these massively high gravity stouts with these really, really ridiculously high finishing gravities. And, um, you know, it was, it was kind of like, okay, we're onto something. Um, and you know, uh, as far as approach wise goes, I mean, I've always, you know, if it's a stout, it's got some roast in it. Um, you know, usually there's a sprinkling of black patten as well, but it's always got a, you know, a pretty big range of, uh, chocolate malts. And, um, you know, these days we're using more and more, uh, de-husked malts. Um, you know, whether it be Carafas, Black Prins, or uh, Love Chocolate Wheat and Chocolate Rye, um, Pale Chocolate is a favorite. Um, but usually these, you know, these recipes end up being kind of, a, you know, it starts with a good base malt like a Maris Otter. Um, it's got a bridge of crystal malts, you know, that may go as high as like a double roasted crystal DRC. Um, and then it's going to have, you know, uh, either very focused on a couple of chocolate malts or a chocolate wheat or a chocolate rye, or it's going to have kind of another bridge of, uh, of roasted grains in there. Um, and a lot of it is, uh, still a work in progress, you know, trying to learn about, um, you know, what adjuncts might play well with the grain bill that we pick, or, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I love good bourbon, but by no, no means am I very well educated on it. You know, I, when I, when I have a good one, I know, you know, what I like. Um, <laughs> sure, sure. And, you know, we have, we've had the pleasure of, you know, using uh, some nice barrels like Blanton's and some of the, you know, more sought after bourbons when we can get them. But I'm also a fan of things like um, Heaven Hill or uh, we just tasted a series of barrels and um, a, chocolate rye imperial stout that came out of a heaven hill rye barrel um like the whole set of the barrels was just wonderful 
and they're all going to be, you know, a great base for a bunch of bottles. Um, we are actually ramping up our bottling efforts. Um, we're looking to try and do um, about two bottles a month uh, next year, which is a big jump from what we've yeah. been doing, which is usually just a couple releases a quarter. Um, but we just uh, added another uh, assistant brewer to our staff so that our lead brewer could um, start heading up a special projects uh, effort to um, to get a lot more bottled beer going out. Interesting. So you mentioned that going in at such a high gravity was really impactful through that barrel process. And that's certainly something that I hear over and over again and had a great conversation with uh, Jim and Marty from Revolution. They had the same kind of thing. Happy accident with really high gravity, mm-hmm. very sweet, under attenuated beer that went into to barrels and has a had a wonderful impact through that barrel aging process just because just because it tends to hold up better over that kind of time. Um, where do you tend to go into barrels now in terms of Plato? Oh, um, usually we're in the like 14 to 16 range. Um, we've had some stuff go in that's way north of that. <laughs> sure. Uh, we, we did a collab with Three Sons recently and that beer finished uh, at 20. Um, you know, and it, it was 42 to start. Uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's a big boy. Um, and you know, that's, that's kind of the top for us so far. We haven't done anything bigger than that. Um, you know, we've collabed with Horace and we did, we did one that through a bunch of feedings in the fermenter had a theoretical, you know, original of like 42. So kind of neck and neck with that three sons as far as, as the top, but that one went into barrels at like 196. Um, so yeah, I mean, big, uh, and we've had stuff going to barrels, you know, in, in, in the 12 Plato range. Um, and for me, now that we're really starting, we have like almost 60 barrels in our basement, which for our spot, you know, you've been here, uh, you haven't seen our basement, but it's not huge. It's 1400. It, it sounds crowded to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 60 barrels is about the max, but now that we're starting to develop good barrel stock and we're going to start blending a lot more instead of doing single barrel releases, a lot of these sort of, uh, thinner, which they're, they're <laughs> technically not really thin, but these no, thinner, no. thinner stouts really pull that barrel character. And, uh, it's, I think it's going to make for a nice blending component with some of these super high gravity ones. Uh, where they might might have too much in the base beer that's just really preventing it from pulling in, you know, a lot because they're just so dense. Um, but these these thinner ones uh, really pick up that barrel. So I think I think once we can start nerding out uh, with this uh, new effort to to do more things, um, it's gonna get really exciting. Bringing those two things together, that's fantastic. Let's zoom out as we finish up here. Thinking about uh, the big picture, what's what's success look like for you and for North Park? What's what's the goal for the brewery, and when will you know that you've achieved it? Um, I mean, we're we're on the path to success. Um, this year's been our our best year yet. You know, both in terms of just like pure enjoyment of of operating this this brewery, and also you know being uh, seeing some some cash hit in the bottom line, which is great. Um, we've and seeing seen some, uh, some peer recognition in terms of, of medals as well. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and I'm, I'm all about that. Um, I, I love that stuff, you know, and, uh, and, you know, we're just looking to keep growing in smart ways, uh, trying to keep a small, you know, small brewery mentality as we grow, 
I never want like a commodities brand, you know, I don't, I don't really want to stay out of grocery stores and things like that. I, we, we're, we're very much set on a direct to consumer, you know, experience. Um, you know, tap rooms for us is, is kind of our growth plan. And, uh, you know, we'll have to build more breweries, you know, to, to continue to supply that, you know, we'll keep packaging, but making cans that, you know, we can sell, you know, direct uh, and make sure that we're maintaining that quality focus. Um, yeah, we'll be opening a satellite uh, tap room uh, next summer uh, locally in the uh, Bankers Hill area near Balboa Park. So cool. looking forward to that. So North Park becomes North Park Plus. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's fantastic. For nearly 30 years, G&D Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on. BSG brings the best malt, hops, and additives from around the world to your brew house. Craft concentrate blends from Old Orchard are packed with real fruit first. It's time to fill like a pro with ProFill can fillers from ProBrew. Get 10% off your next order from Mountain Rose Herbs with code CRAFTBEER10 and make your system 100% food safe with Clarion Lubricants. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to beerbrewing.com. Click on that subscribe button. We bring you great brewing content from some of the world's most inspiring brewers and our all-access subscriptions. Bundle magazines with exclusive digital content and video classes you can't find anywhere else. Kelsey, if people want to learn more about North Park, where do they find you all? Uh, yeah, so you can hop over to our website, northparkbeerco.com, um, on Instagram and Facebook. Our handles are, uh, at North Park Beer Co. Um, and, uh, Twitter as well. We're not too active over there. Um, on, uh, IG, if you are going to follow us, make sure you click that little, uh, you know, alarm bell and subscribe. We've had a bunch of, uh, shadow band stuff going on, which that's probably a whole other episode. Oh man, the breweries are seeing that left and right right now, huh? Yeah, oh, yeah, it's it's really brutal. Um, when you build on rented land and use other people's social media platforms, yeah, you don't call the shots. Then we, mm -mm. like all of us, we just get to pay those platforms to access the same people that liked us already. Um, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's a whole mess. Well. I hope everybody listening gets a chance to try Artist Hard, gets a chance to, to try your West Coast IPAs, and certainly gets a chance to try some of your barrel-aged beers because they're all wonderful things and I've enjoyed greatly uh, uh, drinking and uh, you know discussing those. Kelsey, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Cheers. Cheers, Jamie. This is awesome. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.